Reading from Ephesians 5, 1 to 21. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, bullish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such as a person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. One, two. Yeah, fantastic. Okay. Um, come out a little bit closer. It's a bit nice out here. It's great to be getting back into the book of Ephesians. Um, I don't know about you, but I've really found uh, a lot of encouragement in it and a lot of growth through digging into it. So um, let's just ask that God would be with us as we uh, come to consider these last few chapters of it. Our loving Father, we do give you great thanks uh, for your word uh, that you have communicated with us, Lord, that you've spoken into our lives, uh, Lord, that you speak words of life, Lord, that as we hear these words, Lord, they bring us into light, they bring us into truth, they bring us into, uh, into true life with you. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit this morning, Lord, you would continue to use your word our Lord, to bring this about in our own, in our own hearts. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, what you can see up on the screen is actually a picture of the Yabra State Forest. Does anyone know where that is? The Yabra State Forest? No? It's out the back of Kyogle, or actually kind of out, more out the back of Benalbo. Um, and, uh, it's, yeah, the road between Benalbo and Urbanville, in fact. Um, now, this is a road that when I was a little kid was full of 
wonder and mystery for me because this was the road that my family would take to get to um, my nan's house. She lived at Urbanville, or she still does. She's basically lived there all her life. And if you don't know where Urbanville is, uh, it's like this town that's, uh, you know, kind of like Rapville's been in the news, hasn't it? It's like that big. It's tiny. There's absolutely uh, nothing there besides a pub, a hospital somehow, um, and a school. And do you go out there, Karen? It's beautiful, isn't it? But this road, um, is that all right, Adam? Would you like me to grab the other one? Okay, this road is this road that winds through these forests and there's these beautiful tall trees, as tall as you can see. Uh, They've always got their bark falling off. When you go through this section of forest, you can hear the bellbirds uh, when you wind down the windows. We used to love to pull up at the the stops along the way and yell out cooey and just hear that echo with just nothing else around. And the thing about... um, the thing about where I used to go and visit my nan, we'd come down from the tableland. So we'd drive up to Tenerfield and then down into this valley where, um, through all the mountains. And it just, has, it just is a little bit of a metaphor, I think, of what it's been like to work through the book of Ephesians. What the book of Ephesians does for us is it takes us deep into the grace of God shown in Jesus. And, and the deeper that you swim in it, the, the more real it becomes. It's, it's, it's by going deep into it, you actually kind of realise that you can't really ever plumb the depths of it. And there's that verse that comes up in Ephesians, isn't there? His prayer is that they would know the height and the depth and the, and the, the breadth of the love of God. Because it's just so vast. It's just so enormous. It's the deep love of God and the grace that is shown us. Uh, if you flick on, Adam, one person that I read uh, explained to, to me that, or just made a comment that in Ephesians you realise that grace, the grace of God, isn't just the diving board into the pool of forgiveness. It's actually what you swim around in. I think it's one more picture, Adam. Uh, you ju- jump into it. And often we can think, well, the, you know, we're saved by grace. So it's by God's grace that we're forgiven. But it, it doesn't end there. Grace is what sustains our whole Christian life, our whole Christian walk. And to be a Christian, we've got to constantly allow ourselves to sit in this grace. We've got to constantly allow ourselves to, to receive God's grace. That's what transforms us. You see it in verse 1 of the passage that we've just read. He tells us, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. It's the grace of God that we would be adopted, that we would be made his very own. And that's kind of the first three chapters of Ephesians. And then we take that that next step and we realise that we don't just remain sitting in his grace but it's also a walk, it's a way that we can walk through this life now these aren't my terms, there's a very um, famous commentary on Ephesians by a Chinese uh, guy, he was a Chinese guy, he wasn't a missionary in China, he was an actual Chinese uh, minister or pastor and he 
breaks up Ephesians into these three words, sit, walk and stand. Uh, I've listened to it on audiobook a couple of times now. It's a really helpful book. But that's what he says. He says the next part is telling us how we walk. See, we walk in the way of grace and that's actually how our lives are transformed. And that's where we're up to. We can't take Jesus' salvation and not make him our Lord. Look at verse 2 of chapter 5 with me. And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, as Christians, we are, and we've given up our life to a new way, a new walk that we're on. Okay, And this new way is the pattern of Jesus. Just as Christ loved us and gave up himself for us. And this acknowledges that as we do this, we're actually giving up. We're giving up the control that we have on our life. This is how he's expressing what it means to have Jesus as Lord. We give up our own hold, our own control, and we live with him as Lord. And there's one more thing in this little first part of chapter 5 that we've already been reminded of in the book of Ephesians. And that is that we're doing this shoulder to shoulder. We do this in community. Notice there, the, the way I see it in here is, he says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. He addresses them plurally. It's in verse 2 as well. He says, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us. See, it's implicit here that he's talking to a group of people. And so this is the thing. As Christians, we're on this walk together. So when we're talking about walking, what we're going to see in, this verse, in this, these verses today is the answer to the question, how then do we walk? How do we walk this walk? How do we get on with it? Now, the answer is far bigger than what you get in these next few verses. Okay? This is not all that the Bible says about the walk of a Christian in their life. But they're pretty good and they're pretty thorough in what they tell us. What we've always got to keep in mind, though, is that all of our walk is built on the grace of God. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, Adam, that'll be up there, mate. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us that it's by grace that we've been saved through faith not from ourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that nobody can boast. For we are God's handiwork. We've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, we walk every single step of the walk as a Christian by the grace of God and no other way. And not only that, he says here that he reminds us that we walk in love, walk in the way of love. And that's exactly what we see in the cross of Jesus, which is exactly where he's gone, isn't it? We see the love of God just put on display and we see the grace of God that we would have given to us something that we could never earn or deserve. So these verses, in answering that question, spell out how do we walk by actually first telling us how we shouldn't walk how not to walk. And really, it's going back into the patterns that we're used to walking without Jesus. 
And then the second part is that we would walk in the light. And then the third part is that we would walk in wisdom. Now, I couldn't remember if I've um, given this little analogy before, but when I was a kid, I had this great habit of eating all my Easter eggs, but saving the Easter bunny for like a couple of months later. And so I would hide it up the back of the fridge somewhere and I'd just, you know how chocolate kind of goes a bit white sometimes on the outside? I'd just keep checking it to see if it was about to turn. But the great joy that I took in this was that after all the rest of my family had eaten all their Easter eggs, I would have a Saturday afternoon of absolute delight gorging on one of these chocolate bunnies. Um, I don't know whether you're like that. Um, I've noticed uh, ever since I met Tara, she's quite like this. She'll actually do this with every meal that she eats. So she'll kind of try to savour the very last bite and whatever's on that plate, she'll have worked out what was the most tasty thing so that the very last mouthful... You do this too, don't you? Yeah, I, I looked it up on Google. There was heaps of people do this. It's very common. <laughs> and so that you just make sure that the very last bite is going to be the most biggest burst of flavour in your mouth. Yeah, Matt's there. Um, so... What we've noticed, though, since we've become parents, and Tara in particular, is that the kids half-finish their dinner, kind of run around for a little while, and then suddenly gain interest when she's on this last bite and want to know if they can have a little bit of it, which is... She's, very, she's a very loving mother because she doesn't get it often. But this is a little bit of an idea of setting something apart. Now, the context for what we're about to read, and it's... It's some difficult territory to really dig into. But the context is that we are people that in Christ have been set apart by God. Okay, the, the phrase that he uses, because these are improper for God's holy people. That's what he calls believers, God's holy people. And to be holy is this idea of being set apart. Now, God is holy. God is holy because he is separate from us. He is other. But when we're in Christ, we are also set apart. We're set apart in this world to be different, to be other, and in, in fact, to reflect God. We are following God's example as dearly loved children. We are walking in the way of love. We are set apart in this world to do that. Now, I don't know whether you heard about the, the story of the marathon runner. I've put his name on the slide because I had no chance of memorising it. Can anyone even have a go at pronouncing it? Yeah, I couldn't hear it. <laughs> Did you hear about this guy? In the last couple of weeks, he ran a marathon in under two hours. Now, is a marathon like 42 kilometres? 42 kilometres. And he was the first person, 42.2. Yeah, you would cheat if you stopped at 42. Um, I reckon I'd, I, could, I could manage the 42. I'll, I'll tag in there, I reckon, and we'll call it a relay. But, but um, this guy did it in under two hours. That's a, that's a new world record, uh, a pretty phenomenal thing. But if you've looked into how he did it, he actually had like a little um, guard of runners in front of him, kind of breaking the wind for him the whole time so he could keep this pace. And I guess those guys kept on cycling in and out. He also had a pace car shooting a laser beam onto the road in front of him 
So you know how like when you watch the swimming and stuff, you can see where the world record's at? He literally had that for him to help set his pace. Um, and also those shoes that he's holding, there's big controversy over whether they basically just, you know, had little rockets in them or something like that, <laughs> propelled him along the way. No, not rockets, but anyway. But I was just thinking about this guy. If he's on this, if he's on this path, okay, that's what he's set his, set his mind to. That's what he set his task to. And at no point can he be on this run and then kind of like, you know, sniff the barbecue that he's running past and jump off and go and have a little spell there or, you know, hear the crowd cheering and kind of like be caught up in that and jump off and join in with the party that's, that's going on on the streets beside him. And the same is true for us now that we've begun to follow Christ. Now that we've begun to follow Christ, We've got to stick to it. We've got to stick to that walk that he's taking us on. See, not everything, not, not everything, actually, in fact, basically nothing in this world is going in that same direction. Nothing in this world is going in the direction that is the walk that God has called us to. Everything about your life following Jesus is going to be countercultural. Now, there's kind of some blurry parts because our culture has been heavily influenced by Christian ideas, for sure. Okay, But actually living by faith, actually resting in his grace, that is hugely countercultural. And because our whole walk is based on this grace, it is still countercultural. But do you know what? It's a resurrected life. See, This is a new life that you've been brought into. And the thing about the resurrected life of Jesus is that it doesn't end. It doesn't end in destruction. See, when you are a new child of God in Christ, you are in a resurrected life, in a new life. And so even though you're going against the tide, you're swimming against the tide and you're going against the current, you're doing it as a... A a live person, as a resurrected person. That context is so important to understand the grace and to understand that we've been set apart in this grace. To actually hear properly what these next few verses say. So we go back to verse 3. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or impurity. Or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. This idea of sexual immorality. Now that basically can be summed up as anything that is is sex out of the proper context of being married. And impurity can kind of be summed up as anything that's sexual that's just a, a distortion of what sex should be according to God's good design. Now, that's the first thing we've got to remember about this is that it's completely based on God's good design and the design that God has for sex and our sexual relationships is, is purely good. It proceeds from him and in his goodness in creation. The Christian sexual ethic, okay, so anything Christians might teach about sex is hugely unpopular 
and it's increasingly under attack. I actually think that the big shift has happened from Christians uh, and what they teach about sex being categorized as like, is it prudes? Is that the word that you say? To, to now that we're actually evil for teaching such things, which is just completely bizarre. But it's the world that we live in because we're actually living in a sexually saturated world where sex is just kind of embedded into all kinds of things, all strange kind of things, places where you would never expect it to be. Now, the real key phrase, I reckon, in what Paul has written here is right at the start there, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Now, there's people in my family that absolutely hate onions. And if you dare suggest cooking with an onion, they will seek to excommunicate you from the family. They're that passionate about it. And even if you think you're going to, you know, get all tricky and basically like pulverise an onion so unrecognisably that it's no more than juice and try to add that to your cooking, they'll still sniff it out. They'll still work out that it's there. Even a hint of it is enough to spoil it for them. What a picture. Not even a hint of sexual immorality is proper in a Christian life or in a Christian church. Holiness actually means that you are completely set apart. Okay, Not just a little bit set apart, not just a little bit different or a little bit quirky, but you are set on a different life. You are set into a different, it's a resurrected life. It's a brand new life. Holiness means we're aiming for not even a hint. Because the thing about the smallest part of anything is that it can quickly become a big thing. How does a snowball work? You keep rolling the thing until it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and and soon enough it's an avalanche that's, you know, causing great destruction. Now, of course, of course, and we've, we've made this very clear, the very basis of... Our, our sexual ethic as Christians is God's good design. And our understanding of being a Christian is that we are resting in the grace of God. So just as we're all marred by sexual immorality, just as we're all marred by every other type of sin, we are completely dependent on God's grace in this area of our life, yes? Okay, so this is not saying that if there's a hint of sexual immorality in your life, that you are you know, somehow not a Christian or you're not able to be a Christian. But what it's saying is that the walk that you're on is a walk where there is not a hint of sexual immorality. This is the path that you're on. Now, just thinking about how we're in a sexually saturated world, the prevalence of pornography in our world is just kind of so commonplace now that uh, people will just you know, talk about it openly very normalised, comes up like that in our TV shows. It's actually been coming up like that in our TV shows for, for 20 years, 30 years kind of thing. And as this kind of social phenomenon has happened of this distortion of, of sex, okay, people have put in a lot of time into studying it. And through the week I was listening to an interview 
with a um, theologian. His name was Dr. Matthew Tan. And he calls himself the awkward Asian theologian. Uh, he's an Australian-born, um, I think he's Singaporean guy. And he's actually a Catholic guy. Um, and I don't normally quote or read or engage with Catholic theologians, just as a disclaimer, but uh, this guy had done a really helpful study into the metaphysics of pornography, what's actually going on when people are engaging with it. And one of the studies, one of the things that he found is just how saturated our world is with this, is that it's distorted young people to the point where they're really not able to engage in what we would consider normal sex very much because they're so distorted in their view of what sex is like. But it actually, thinking about it metaphysically, he's actually thinking about what's going on as your brain's engaging with it, what's going on with the engagement of it. And what he's discovered, or what he's proposing, is that it's actually an attraction to the complete escape, to the escape of all the pressures of life, to the escape of the worries, all of those kind of things. People are drawn to this to just escape from the reality of this world. Now, doesn't the gospel speak like such awesome truth into this kind of phenomenon? Because the gospel tells us that, yeah, we've got a way out because the problem, you know, the, the desire to escape things in this world should be there because we recognise that the whole world is distorted by sin. But it's escaping to something that's incredibly destructive and incredibly dehumanising. But what he actually proposed beyond this is that the attraction to escape is an, actually an escape to kind of like endless possibilities. This escape to, to their being available to you to see or look at anything that your mind can imagine. It's kind of like Willy Wonka on steroids, isn't it? The world of pure imagination. And as he's gone along in this study, and this is about to hurt, are you ready? He actually could see the exact same thing happening in what's going on with all our addictions to, to Instagram, to Facebook, to that endless scrolling, looking for that endless possibility. Sure, it manifests for some people in pornography, but it manifests in lots of ways in lots of part of our life. Even maybe it's realestate.com, whatever it might be. You know what I mean? This idea that there's just endless possibilities for each of us. And as I listened to this, I was like trying to prepare this sermon. Like I wasn't literally doing it at the same time, but it was, it was marinating around in my brain. And I'd noticed that a couple of times now, Paul here doesn't just leave sexual immorality there, he actually couples it up with greediness. He did it first back in chapter 4. Adam, that's up there too. Back in chapter 4, he tells us that having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. Sensuality, this idea that we're just raw uh, animals wanting to indulge anything that stimulates our senses. And he's done it again in chapter, th- in chapter 5, verse 3. 
But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. See, what's the link between these two things? Can you see how that both of them, in just in manifesting in different ways, are a desire to have more, to control more, to desire more, to rule over more, to look for fulfilment and satisfaction in something else, something other than God? Okay, so why is Paul going so deeply into this? Or why am I going so deeply into these couple of words, more to the point? Because we've got to understand the tide that we're walking against. And it's a tide that goes on in our society, and it's a tide that's in our own heart. But I just want us to compare the two so that we can really be honest about this. Sexual sin and greed. I actually think that we have a culture in Christian churches, so long as I've been in one, where if there's sexual sin, you don't know about it until it kind of becomes very obvious. But the desire for wealth is actually quite common. You know, it's not uncommon for us to be sharing, we desire for this to happen, we desire for that to happen, we're looking forward to this new job or to this new home or this new car or anything like that. And it's almost like, If someone is wealthy, we're more likely, you know, we don't want to be people that are saying, oh, gee, they're so wealthy, who do they think they are? But I actually more often catch myself saying, oh, look, look at what they've got, and kind of finding that envy creep in. Look at at what, I wish I had that too. Aren't they a great person? See, they they must have it all together. We've got this funny culture. And I just think as Christians, one of the ways that we least stand out is how we are different with our material possessions, how we're different with what we own and how we use it. One of the most acceptable sins to be greedy. Now really, what is the opposite of greed? Isn't it generosity? I was reminded then of this story that uh, Jesus told uh, or that actually it's not a story that Jesus told, it's actually an encounter that Jesus had in Mark chapter 4. And you read there, Mark chapter 4, verse 12, and they're actually taking up the collection in the treasury. And we read about this poor widow. There's nothing, no name given to her, but this is what it says. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put only two very small copper coins with only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. That's the picture. That's the walk that we want to be on. One of generosity. So, that's that's chapter 5, verse 3. I'm going very slow this morning, okay? And we're not going to go through all the verses, so I'll let you off there. But listen to what verse 4 says. He moves on to what I would call our speech ethic. Look at what he says. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking 
which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Chapter 4 has already dealt with a lot about how we speak to one another, but really he gets to the point where he's talking about how this sexual immorality might spill over into our speech, into making crude jokes with one another. Okay? And what the problem is, is if it's in our speech, it's obviously, there it is, it's that hint of sexual immorality. Even if we're conscience is clear, we're not looking at anything we shouldn't be, we're not doing anything with anyone we shouldn't be, but we're still making jokes about it, we're still cracking those crude jokes, well, that's a hint of sexual immorality. And it's actually cheapening that good thing. If I'm just going to turn it into a joke, I cheapen what is good. Now, thankfully, I don't you know, encounter this here on a Sunday morning, but it's not uncommon for a Saturday night to spend time with friends, and I have a lot of non-Christian friends, and it's not uncommon to hear that. It's just commonplace for people to make those kind of comments or jokes. It even comes out in the, in the youth. Um, they might be talking about a movie that they're going to or a TV show that they uh, have been watching, and I'm like, oh, yeah, tell me about it. Where can I watch it? And they say to me, oh, hang on, I don't think you'd like that. And I'm like, well, why not? It's almost like they think because I'm the leader there that I shouldn't, you know, there's a standard for me that I shouldn't watch this. But really, it's a standard for all of us, isn't it? There shouldn't even be a hint. So there shouldn't be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. This is the walk that we're on. And instead... Our words should be words that express thankfulness. Now, all of this stuff is underpinned by idolatry. Moving on to verse 5 now, he says, For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, and then he throws this note in, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And it tripped Karen up when she read it, and it's kind of meant to trip us up because it's meant to actually make us stop and understand where this sin is coming from. See, the sin of idolatry is what I was kind of saying before. It's putting ourselves in the place of God or other things in the place of God where we let ourselves or other things rule over us, the sin of idolatry. Now, this is why Christians can be so on the nose with our Christian sexual ethic because our world would actually say, you know, whatever's going on inside of you, you rule. And whatever desire you have, that should rule in your life. Okay? And you should let that dictate how you live your life. But it's not the case. Okay? That is the sin of idolatry. I've got friends and family and I've had conversations before that... When they get to hearing the message of Jesus, when they come to try to understand the gospel, you can almost tell that they're drawn to the love of Christ, but they just can't get over this. They can't get over this fact that actually, you know, I've got to admit here that, that I'm a sinner, that I actually I don't rule and I shouldn't rule and it's not my place to rule. See, Paul puts it very plainly here. Look at verse uh, look at verse 6 with me. Let no one deceive you with their empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. God's anger is reserved for sin. And he absolutely hates it. And so on this walk of love, we must never walk in sin. 
Because we're in that way of love now. We're in that way of grace. I've already half gone there with this next thought, but are we disqualified then when we sin? Are we disqualified when we stumble, when we trip up, when we make that mistake? Back in verse 5, it's actually you know, quite strong language. No immoral, impure or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That's pretty confronting. It makes me think, oh my goodness, what about my own life? What about my own sin? Like it's not uncommon for me to sin. For this to be talking about single instances of sin would actually be misleading because that would actually go against, uh, that doesn't make sense of the whole teaching of the New Testament. It doesn't fit in the context of what we've already seen in the book of Romans. And you see later in verses 12 to 14, uh, Paul spells this out a little bit more. What this actually has in mind is someone who just kind of lets go and completely gives themselves over to sin. Completely gives themselves over and leaves Christ behind to do it. So just thinking through those couple of those situations that Paul's given of sexual immorality and greed, it might look like this. It might look like someone who begins dating someone and then instead of um, treating them the way that God would have them treat them, they're kind of given over to their lusts, to their desires, to their attraction. They might start sleeping with them and then out of shame kind of fall out of fellowship with the church. Or maybe... In greediness, someone begins to work more and to pay a bigger mortgage and then gives up because they just don't have time anymore, the serving opportunities they have in church, and then, and then gives up their Bible reading and prayer because they're just too exhausted by trying to chase after this stuff all the time. Now, as I wrote those, um, those couple of examples there, I thought, these are such cliches. Can I think of anything better than this to say? And then I thought, well, hang on, yeah, they are cliches, but don't they happen too often? Don't they happen too often? Can't you think of someone that has gone in one of those directions? But do you know what? Even just going in one of those shames or directions, I don't think is exactly what Paul's saying here. Because even someone that starts on that track isn't unable, by God's grace, to come back to him. And, and find themselves as his child again. But if someone just continues on that without any shame, without any remorse, I think that's who Paul's taking aim at there. And this actually brings us to the big point that I want to make with us this morning. That this is all founded on the grace of the Lord Jesus. And it's grace that must lead us to walk in this way, to walk in God's light. That is, that we would submit to him, that having received him as a saviour, we would submit to him to show us how to live, to teach us how to live. These verses are not just suggestions. Okay? He's not just saying, you know, you should try to you know, clean up your act there a little bit with your greediness. Come on, you, you should think about that. He's being very clear. 
Don't be a greedy person. Don't be sexually immorality. Not even a hint of it. Very clear. But you need to let that transformation happen out of the wellspring of his grace working in your life. We submit to him not out of fear, but because we've seen his grace and we know that he is a good Lord, a good Lord to follow. If we have grace but we have no submission to him, that'll just lead us to complete apathy. We just won't care about how we live. But we can't just accept his love and not recognise the grace that's in it because his love is so marvellous because it is so undeserved. It is so undeserved in our hearts. Now, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but I've kind of been interchanging the word love and the word grace as I've been speaking this morning. And it's not because they're the same word and not because they have the same meaning, but because the act of, of God's grace is such an expression of his love that I just can't see a line between them. And to walk in the way of love has to come on the foundation of his grace. So we've got to remember that this sin that we've, that we've delved into today is what we've turned from, that we might walk toward him. Just as a way of encouragement, jump down to verse 14. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Wake up, sleeper. See, don't get caught in that pattern of thinking, I can accept Jesus, but you know I'm not that sure about living all this Christian stuff. It's just a bit weird. He, and just being apathetic about it. He says, wake up. And what's going to happen when you wake up? Are you going to be met with condemnation? Are you going to have to trudge along and plea your case? No. And the light of Christ will shine on you, he says. The light of Christ will shine on you. Rise from the dead. You are in a resurrected life, Jesus, Paul says here. If you struggle personally to stay on God's path, hear these plea to wake up and let Christ shine on you. To the darkness that's in sinfulness, to the dark parts of your life, to the struggles that you have, to the draw that you find to living any other way. Wake up, God's word says. Where are you at this morning? What are the things that you personally need to wake up from? Is there more than a hint or is there even a hint of sexual immorality in your own life? Are you consumed by greed? Pretty easy to be consumed by greed. Are you constantly speaking in ways that are not permitted in verse 4? You've got to remember that it's because of these things that God's wrath is coming. God's judgment on sin is coming. And it's because of these things that God's judgment was placed on the Lord Jesus. Remember that. We've already heard that. Come through a couple of verses in Ephesians with me. Chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption... Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Chapter 2, verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. 
walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice for you. See, God's wrath has been dealt with. And that is the hope that we hold on to and that is the grace that we know. So walk it. Walk in that grace. Walk in that love. Walk in that light. If you're doing that, there's a remarkable statement here. You are light in the Lord. You are light in a dark world. Now, this is true. In, in grace, you are light in the Lord. That's verse 8. For we were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So what? Live as children of the light. Now, I'm going to stop now, and I've got a chunk more verses to talk through. And this is the stuff that we're going to uh, use as our teaching at, um, at our church camp in a few weeks. Uh, because it's so, you know, there's just too much there. I, only, I just realised when I was preparing this that I'd made my first point and there's still two more to go, but we don't want to sit here into the afternoon. We, we want to keep coming back to his word to know how to live as children of his light, but I believe that this part is very clear and gives us heaps of stuff to mull over to think about what kind of walk are we walking Are we making the most of the grace that's been shown in our life? And maybe you've heard all what I've said this morning and it actually makes you realise that you're not a believer yet, that you haven't taken hold of the grace that I've been talking about. Well, if that's you, can I encourage you to come and talk to me and I will more than happily share with you exactly what it looks like to receive the grace of the Lord Jesus. But for now, let's pray. And I'm actually going to give us some time in our prayer time, to just be quiet and ask God to reveal in us stuff that we've got to wake up from. So let's pray together. Our Father, we give you great thanks for the grace that you've shown us in the Lord Jesus. Lord, thank you that your grace extends from every sin, Lord, even the ones in our childhood, to everyone that we might commit, Lord, while we're in this in this world, in this fallen and broken world. But Lord, thank you that out of this world you've brought us into a new life and Lord, you've set us on a path of following you. And Lord, in following you, Lord, we are walking toward you. Father, Lord, reveal in our hearts now what we need to wake up to. And Father, let us know the assurance of your grace. Lord, that as we wake up, you shine your light on us. And your light, Lord, is a declaration that our sin is dealt with on the cross. So Father, free us to walk in the freedom of knowing that. For Jesus' sake, amen.